on today's story beat. And that's why I always like to tell people too. And they're like, well, you knew Dennis Miller. That's how you got in the business. And it's like, well, let me tell you this. When he hired me on my first show, he didn't even have the clout to just say, this guy's on my staff. HBO, I had to send them a hundred topical jokes, Dennis and HBO, and have them approved to get me on the show. And I wasn't sure if I could do it or not. I suspected I could, but I sat down in the USA Today and I did it and luckily it worked. And but it's funny, and then so all of a sudden I became this big top little joke writer for his show, but we were burning through it so fast. This is Story Beat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Story Beat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on Story Beat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, Ed Driscoll, is an Emmy award-winning comedian, writer, and producer who's worked with some of the biggest stars in the entertainment industry, including Billy Crystal, Morgan Freeman, Joan Rivers, Michael Buble, Justin Timberlake, and Dennis Miller, just to name a few. From variety shows to sitcoms to movies to live theater, Ed has been a performer, writer, and producer at the highest levels of his field for over 25 years. Ed's written for shows including the Academy Awards, for which he received an Emmy nomination, Comic Relief, Stand Up to Cancer, ESPN's ESPY Awards, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Dennis Miller Live, for which he won both an Emmy and Writers Guild Award, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Melissa and Joey, The Showbiz Show with David Spade, I Kid with Brad Garrett, Michael Buble's Christmas in New York, The Drew Carey Show, Ultimate Beastmaster, Still Laughing, and The Final Table. Ed has also written stage material for big acts like Robin Williams, Bob Newhart, Howie Mandel, and Louis Anderson. So for those reasons and many more, I'm greatly honored to welcome the extraordinary comedian and comedy writer Ed Driscoll to Story Beat today. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow, I'm listening to all that and going like, oh, oh, this this guy sounds interesting. I'm like, oh, wait, no, he's not. It's me. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to find oh. out one way or another throughout this hour. That's for sure. Yes, but that was lovely. I should quit while I'm ahead. That's how I'm feeling. I should bail right now because I don't think I can do better. Than that. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, folks. And oh, no, sorry. We're, we're going to carry on. So, all right, let's go back to your beginnings. What were your earliest inspirations and influences? Where did you start to think to, to yourself? Were you a kid? Were you a class clown? When you said, I like comedy, I'm going to tell jokes. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I knew really early. I knew really early. I, I want to say fifth grade, for sure. But right. I just, I had a natural thing for making people laugh. And it right. really wasn't like, a, I'm going to go in here and be funny today. But I just kind of had a natural ability to make people laugh. And that was a nice thing because I was a bit shy, which that weird thing that people are always surprised to hear where you feel more comfortable talking to 20,000 people at once sometimes than two or three you don't know. Um, and it was just a nice icebreaker. And I noticed adults used to kind of laugh at stuff I'd say too. So I, I think around fifth grade, I was like, I, something's here. I don't know. And I started listening to Robert Klein albums. He is he my guy. And then and some George Carlin, but Robert Klein was really my guy. So by fifth, sixth grade, I had uh, most of his stuff kind of just memorized, just loved it. Now, I didn't do his routines in class, 
And so it's good. I knew even then to not be a thief, which is which is a good thing. But I, mm. I loved listening to to his stuff. But I thought at that point uh, I was kind of a class clown. And then did the talent show in seventh grade, eighth grade, and like got laughs. I was one of the few people like kind of doing comedy. You, know? you were doing stand up in the seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, it was, you know, that's, that's probably a charitable way to put it. Um, but <laughs> I don't know if it really qualified fully as comedy, but the, t- the temerity of a kid, everybody else, here's a singer, here's a dancer, here's a tap dancer, here's somebody in the piano or somebody on the flute. And it's like, well, Ed Driscoll has some funny observations and stuff. But it, and then of course the killer, which, I'm, which launched my career, was the impression of Mr. Schwartz, the gym teacher in eighth grade that just tore the place down. I regret that uh, he's not more famous because that's the only impression I really do well. And so nobody knows it past Our Our Lady of Grace in eighth grade. (laughs) Well, in the seventh and eighth grade, you were already developing something like an act, even though it wasn't polished in any way. Yeah. And then the thought I had, and then I got into high school and I went from a private private school grade school to over St. Clair High where I didn't know most of the people there most of them had all gone to school through middle school uh, together and I didn't know many people there but my wit was a nice way to deflect things and to make friends and to you know make the bullies laugh or think I might make them cry with some sharp barb so they'd leave (laughs) me alone and the teachers liked me too and so when I hit about ninth grade I remember thinking Boy, you know, maybe when I get ever whatever my job job is, eventually I, I I'm gonna get up at night and try comedy and and see what happens. And so, so you had you mindset. You had an awareness even then that there was a thing called a career in comedy. Yes. Yes. Uh, and you know, I knew these guys. I'm like, well, uh, Robert Klein and George Klein, they're comedians. That's what they are. And then I knew, well, there's nightclubs. You have to go up and try to do your act. And I was like, I was aware of it. And I thought, well, you can't probably make a living, but I'll get a job doing something or other. And then I'll work on that and we'll just see how it goes. But I think that's kind of a plan. Um, The notion of standing in front of people and telling jokes was appealing to you at that point. Yeah, as I found my way and I was able to do it and I enjoyed it. I, I, I seemed half decent at it. And then... I, when I graduated Upper St. Clair, um, I was really at that. For the the listeners who would not know, Upper St. Clair is here. Actually, Ed lives in Pittsburgh where where this show's being uh, Well, it's funny. I am bi-coastal. As you know, I grew up here in Pittsburgh and I, I, my friends, most people bi-coastal is uh, New York and LA. And for me, it's LA and Pittsburgh again recently. Yeah, sure. As you and I have discussed. So it's, that kind of blows people's minds, but um, I'm sorry. Yes. I mean, and we call it in Pittsburgh, it's upper St. Clair and it's USC where the initials. And I remember I had a track jacket that says USC and I had it in California. And these girls like, you run track. I'm like, I sure do. And I'm like, that's Upper St. Clair, not Southern Cal, you know, but I wasn't going to tell them that. And like the colors are different too, ladies, but whatever. I'm not going to point not, that not, out. Not to spoil anything, but I am actually a USC grad from Southern Cal. Oh, are you? Yes, I went to USC. Or so you say. Oh, no, I, I've, had, I've got the paper to prove it. <laughs> I don't see the jacket. See, the jacket is, is what gives you the bona fides. It's all about the letter, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> And I'm sorry, I don't mean to ramble too much about this, but where it really took off for me is as a freshman at Ohio State mm. when I went to college there. And the day I moved in, there was this um, 
competition, comedy competition on campus, 50 bucks to the winner. And I thought like, okay, well, I, I got I, this, I got to do. So that's when I really put my first little routine together, which was mostly a lot of making fun of commercials that were on then and so forth. And I went down to the student union and signed up for this contest uh, at the campus there. I thought, well, you know, let's see how it goes. Some of my friends came along. They're like, yeah, you'll get free beer if you win or, or whatever. And talking about doing acts. So the first three guys I followed, a guy did Carlin. The next guy did Cosby. Another guy did Pryor. And <laughs> then it was me. Well, the beauty was, though, it wasn't Cosby, Carlin, or Pryor that was doing that stuff. So it was not, do, they didn't do so good because it wasn't them. It wasn't authentic. Sure. And I went on and clearly, especially then, my material was far inferior to those guys, but it was me. And so like I killed it, you know, and I won this little contest. And that's when I really started thinking like, uh-oh, I, you know, it's a pretty big campus and I might be pretty good at this. And then this was, and I hate giving away because I feel like a thousand years old these days. Um, but in the eighties, when stand-up comedy clubs started popping up. Right. So right out in my freshman year, this club came into Columbus called Giggles Classic, the, the goofy name. You, you couldn't even make that up. And they had an open mic night every Sunday. And right then, so I was, well, I, I got to go down and try this open mic in the professional club. And I went down there and kind of the same thing. So the audiences were kind of rooting for you. It's not like um, the professional nights where it's like, we've paid, let's, let's, let's see what's funny. And so kind of the same thing. Some people doing other people's routines, some people just not too funny. And I don't know, I got fortunate. I went up there and I just kind of crushed it. And this was a full like 300 people. And the prize there was to come back and open up at the beginning of the show for 10 minutes for the professional show, Wednesday through Saturday. Wow. So, but as you can imagine, so now I haven't been on stage a ton and I've always done really good, but it was like, I think it was the situation and the chutzpah of this kid getting up and so forth. So my head's spinning. I'm like, holy cow, yeah, I'm going to be a star in like four or five days here. This is unbelievable, <laughs> you know? And then, so I go in Wednesday night and instead of that full crowd rooting for you, it's about 25 people. They're all over the room, you know? It's like, oh, and it ain't that atmosphere. And it's, well, we've paid what? And I'm on their face and I go up there and I just proceed to tank. You know, it's pin drop city. <laughs> I am the mayor. I'll never forget it. I, I still can feel it in my body. And it was one of those clubs where you don't come in from behind the stage. You walk up the center aisle past sure, sure. So I get up there. I eat it for, for what the stuff that has been killing. I eat it for 10 minutes. Then I have to walk through the crowd on my way out. And I hear this guy say to his date, what the hell was that? Like right as I'm walking by, I was like, okay, let's cancel the stardom plans and maybe just go to suicide. Like, you know, it was like this real moment where I was like, oh, okay, this is how this goes. And I'm telling you, I wanted to call the guy at the club and go, guess what? Ain't coming back for that. Uh, sorry, I, I don't need that. I have enough insecurities. But I roamed around the, the campus the next day and I was like, well, this is what it's about. Are you good? Is this what you want to do? You better go, you know, you, you got to be a man and show up and fulfill your obligation. Uh, I don't know if that was good news for the club, but I went back and I did okay the rest of the week. That was the toughest show, but that felt like kind of a turning point for me of going like, okay, it's not going to be easy and it's not always terrible. Do you want to do this? Can you do this? 
And so, yeah. So, so my question was going to be, but you've sort of answered it. There is no, I know, there is no school you can go to to become a stand-up comedian. You can't get a degree in stand-up comedy. The only way to really learn it is to do it. Is that right? Yeah, I would say, you know, and then it's funny. Um, you learn techniques, right? I used to watch the, the pros when I first started because you, you get the idea of, oh, there's certain techniques to follow and callbacks and you learn these little tricks of the trade and watch how people perform up on stage. Is he holding the mic? Isn't he? So by paying attention, but as, yeah, as Dennis Miller, I used to would chat about this and he, he, where he'd say, you know, you, you do need that X chromosome of being funny. You need that little chromosome that it's the funny chromosome. And I taught a course in stand-up comedy in Boston and the adult education there. But I tried to tell people at the beginning, I said, this is great. This is for you to have fun with. Some of you might become comics, some of you may not, but this will help your public speaking, your confidence, because it really is like trying to teach somebody to be good looking, right? It's like, they got what they got and, you know, I can shave and put on nice stuff, but you're going to be what you're going to be. But you do need that little extra something going that, you know, oh, that's a funny person. Just the incongruities of the way you look at the world. Sure. Um, so to answer your question in an extremely long winded way is that, yeah, the, the skills can be learned. But I think, you know, ultimately, if you're not funny, you're not going to. Do you it. do you think of yourself as a writer primarily or a stand up comedian primarily or something else? Is, is it something in between? What how do you consider yourself? Yeah, that's a good uh that's a good one. Sometimes it's jackass, but that's, oh, that's other people. You're talking about what, what do I think of me? Um, I, uh, well, it's funny, you know, just, I'm not sure that I have it, but you need I to don't be write a, drama. You need to be a writer first. You actually have to pr prepare material before you can perform the material, correct? You know, you are, you are right. It's funny. Writing jokes and writing for the stand-up act to me, though, isn't in my head like what I call writing. Writing for me is sitcom writing, movie writing, writing my book, that in my head. But you're exactly right. You have to write your stand-up back too. But the, it feels so separate to me. It's like comedian and then writing. I, I want to explore this for a moment because I find it interesting. You don't think of the act as something that you're, you're being a writer uh, on prior to doing the act? It's, it's funny. And this is the first time I've thought about it that way. Is you clearly do have to write an act and it is what I do. But for some reason in my head, when people are like, I got a writing project for you, I never think of like, oh, it's me writing out my stand-up and so forth. I always think, oh, this is a story. Or, although I tell stories in my stand-up. So. so when you're writing material for big acts like Robin Williams, et cetera, et cetera, do you think of yourself as a writer then? For sure, you know, because it's not me and I have to kind of try and write in their voice. And that was the thing that was helpful for me when I started to realize, oh, I can kind of write in other people's voices, too. Mm -hmm. That was very helpful because I could hear their intonation and say, OK, I, yeah, I've got this. This is how they talk. And I, it is almost like getting into a dramatic character of some sort of going like, OK, well, what would Bob Newhart say here? He would stammer and he'd say, as opposed to me kind of spitting my stuff out. The way I write my stand-up is kind of like what I'm doing with you. I talk and I'm like, oh, that's what I'm going to write that down. That's a good little riff. And it's more like riffs and lines. Whereas the other, when I'm writing for somebody else, I'm looking at them and their character and everything else. I guess it just comes more naturally when I'm doing me because it's like, oh, this doesn't take as much effort because I know this Ed Driscoll guy. But other projects, it feels a little more outside of my realm where I have to like 
become them. So what I also find interesting of all the names we've mentioned, and there have been quite a few names mentioned here, um, pretty much every one of them, except maybe for Morgan Freeman, are all known for comedy. Um, the one person who I, you know, I, I know it's an act or was an act, but the one person who never seemed like an act was Robin Williams. It always seemed like he was just coming out of the top of his head. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, very clever and, and so forth. And then, as, as I'm sure you know, in prop troops, it, there might be one point where somebody says something and you come up with that funny line. Yeah. That, that line was going to come out again at other times and you've got it now. Yeah. So in his head, you know, it's like, oh, remember that time I went to the salad bar and I said this? Is like, oh, this place is a salad bar and here I go. And so it, it, for him, it was kind of a combination of that. He was quick on his feet, but, you know, oh. situations would present themselves over and over. Um, nobody was never as spontaneous as they appear no no it was definitely an act uh, but nobody was faster than robin williams i mean he was fast yeah well and it's that manic style too though you know what i mean i so i I guess i would look at it from that way saying his style is manic too Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i think most comics and i know mine too whose minds are going a thousand miles an hour in there but here's what's coming out Whereas Robin would just let it, hey, it's coming out as fast as it's coming in. Exactly, exactly. So what would you say is the most challenging thing about being a stand-up comic? Is it being on the road? Is it uh, developing at the act? Is it dealing with hecklers? What's the most challenging thing about being a stand-up comedian? Well, it's funny, you know, I I used to travel a lot when I did it and I wasn't crazy about that. But when I was just a single guy and no kids and everything else, it was kind of fun to see the country. But I got tired of that. And when I went out to L.A., and started working on Dennis's show out there. I kind of like that. It's like, I can stay in town, I can write shows, and I can choose where I want to go more. So, and that's what I do more now. It's like, I'm picking these. It's like, I I don't have to go to some town I don't want to for three straight weeks or something just to make my living. So I I like the fact that I'm able to spin a lot of plates and, and write in sitcom and write in movies and write for other people's and so that I don't have to be on the road so much for mm-hmm. sure. So I, I got tired of that part of it. So that, that, that uh, uh, sort of routine of having to constantly be in and out of a suitcase got tired. That was wearisome to you. Yeah, I, de- definitely. I think, you know, it, it's much more tolerable, but then after a while and then, especially when I had my kid, too. It's like, well, I don't want to leave town at all. And I'd go here and there, but just by choice going, okay, I'm doing a week in Chicago and that's fine. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not Toledo, Topeka, you know, back-to-back days in, in your car. Sure. You know? So, I mean, I was fortunate that I kept building kind of on my career. You know, I from, went from Pittsburgh and went to Boston and was working up there and Dennis came along. Um, I had known him in Pittsburgh. He was the big guy in Pittsburgh when I was just starting out. He was right. just or just starred him and he was here and he was real nice to me and told me so when he first saw him, he's like, you know, you, you got you got a bright future. And you know, I noticed he didn't say bright present. He said future, but he saw the seeds in me. I mean, I wasn't good, but he saw that there was something to me. And then he went to New York and got on Saturday Night Live and so forth. And I didn't see him for several years. And then I'd moved up to Boston and I was doing some local TV commercials there and doing stand up and doing my thing. And he heard I was in town and he was coming to a theater in Boston in 94. And he heard I was in town. And so he asked the, the club there, they said, hey, can you get a Driscoll to have him open for me? And that's when we reconnected. And then by then, luckily, I was pretty good. I'd gotten a lot better. And we had, 
we were, we're a good mix on uh, his audiences are, are smart, you know, and, and I tried, I work clean and I, I'm always thrilled to work as brightly as the crowd will let me and his crowds came to listen. So I would always have a great show in front of them. And so it was fun. You know, I love the term you work clean for the, for those listeners that may not know the, the terminology, what does it mean to work clean in comedy? Well, it's, you know, well, generally it's not being profane that that used to be the old fashioned version. You're not dropping F bombs in here and there. And, and I don't, swear swear a lot anyway in my normal life or stage life but what's good about it too is that there's a few jokes here and there and then you do drop that in there and the emphasis makes a big difference if they you know it works for some people great got prior said f every other word and he's brilliant but for me it's kind of good and it's like i'll go like 45 minutes and then if i drop an f into some i'm saying f but it is a podcast here but if, if i drop that into a routine suddenly it's going to get a big burst because all of a sudden people are like, oh, that is funny. And it was right at the right time, you know? So, well, well we just lost, as we're recording the show, we just lost a day or two ago, um, a very profane comedian being Gilbert Gottfried, who I met briefly, and he was nothing like that offstage. He was a complete opposite offstage. Yeah. Uh, oh, too many deaths. And I know it's my, my dear, dear friend, Louis Anderson, that I'm just still crushed over. But, you know, I knew Bob Saget very well. Good guy. Um, Norm Macdonald, I knew a little bit, was always super nice whenever I saw him. So you're watching all these. And then like Gilbert, I only worked with him. I worked, I worked two week, weeks with him uh, in Nashville about six years ago on a, a TV project and couldn't have been nicer. And yeah, you're right. He was like so quiet, but that stage persona was so funny, but that was his persona. Exactly. Yeah. You've already talked about it early in your career, you bombed. Um, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, all comedians without fail, have to go through some form of bombing in order to get good. Is that true? I wish it weren't. I don't know if the bombing actually makes you better, but I think you have to be ready for it. You know what I mean? I, I, I think maybe it makes you tougher, but you have to try stuff out. And that's, and that's when it can happen, where you can try, you're trying new stuff and it just ain't working. The ones you don't like and the ones that I always felt like you don't learn from is when you know this five minutes is really good and the crowd just kind of sucks and and it just isn't going over Th those kind of hurt although of course there's nothing funnier to other comics than watching each other bump because we all you know we'd laugh and we'd sympathize and you watch your friend up there but it's like <laughs> well we all know we're funny it's like i've seen fran kill all the time i'm like oh this is funny he's struggling and he's kind of giving it back to the crowd you know and we're watching this little back and forth um <laughs> yeah bombing on its own per se is, is maybe does, is not something I think that makes you necessarily great, but having the conviction to go out, try out new stuff. And if it doesn't work, not panic and kind of roll with it. Well, I don't mean to imply that you should try to bomb. I mean that. that oh, I don't have to try. Yes. I have a gift. <laughs> no, I, you know, my percentage is pretty high. And, and so are like most people, and I, cause I, you know, I see some folks and God bless them. Are you seeing an open mics as you're coming up? It's usually, they're just not funny and they're bombing every night up there. And you're like, Oh my God, I couldn't take it. If it was like that for most of the time for me, I'd be out of there in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And then Stephen Wright, the great comic, I remember him and I talking about the agony of one joke in your act that you try. Cause a lot of times you'll go out. And so I've got 10 minutes of stuff I know works. And now I'm going to try these two in the middle and then always close with something, you know, works, but yeah, you stumble or through this and boy, that's the one 
we were talking about that. You always remember going like, oh my God, that was uncomfortable. Those two that just didn't quite go over. Explain to me how an act is developed or at least how your act is developed. It takes a little while to, you don't just wake up in the morning and you have an act. You actually have to develop it over time, right? And so you, like you say, you're trying things out in the middle. Do you then take what you saw didn't work so well and rework the, the phrasing of it or how you deliver it, the timing? And, and in some way then, keep it in the act? Great questions, because it it really, really varies. Like, why did the bit not work? Did I kick it? Did I say it wrong? It's like, well, then I didn't really even get to test it. So I got to go back out tomorrow and do it the same way because we never really heard it. Mm -hmm. um, or did I say it? And it's like, oh, it got titters and oh, part of it, but this part didn't work. And that's when you rework and go, okay, so this part of the story is kind of funny. They're not digging this one. And it usually becomes like that. And once in a while, I get lucky and something just perfectly kind of falls together. Right, right, sure. And at other times, you get surprised too. You go out and it's like, boy, I really like this. And it no, and no. And that's, you know, two nights in a row, it's just not biting. And those are interesting conversations with your comedian peers because you'll say like, hey, what's up with this? Do you know? And you have to make that brave decision. Am I, do I believe in this enough that I'm going to go out a couple more nights and, and even though this isn't getting much of anything and try to work it or guess what? No one else thinks this is funny except me. And so it's a constant push and pull of that and, kind of thing. And once you have what you think of as a routine that you now, it's the routine they're, they're hiring you to come into a city to do, or this is your act. How long would you say it takes to develop that? Is it is it months? Is it years? And then what? How often do you then say I'm throwing that out and starting all over again? Hmm. Boy, great questions again. But boy, everybody's so different too, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, well, I'm curious how you do it, Ed. Yeah, but I'm just like as far as times and stuff, like again, I don't even know what time it is now. So how long it took me to get the stuff? But stuff improves, and then you throw out some stuff. But ideally, if you can hone things that'll work for years and years and years. Now it's not like vaudeville back in the day where you could have ten minutes of material and your whole career. That's all you had to do. As we know, TV eats up stuff here, and and internet and material gets eaten up. But as I got more experience in doing it, my batting average was higher because I kind of knew in my head going, I bet this will do good. I bet, mm -hmm. Like you're guessing better going in that like, oh, I, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. I'm pretty sure. And you just keep building on it. Sometimes you might put stuff aside out of boredom with it or once in a while, if it gets long in the tooth going like, well, nobody has a Rolodex anymore. I remember I had this great bit that had Rolex and it's like, Eh, give it up Ed. that's done yeah but who has one anymore is right yeah. well right so i was like i had to give it up like 10 years ago all of a sudden when i was like oh you could change it but then i was like not worth keeping i imagine that the, the the certainly the headline the big name acts the robin williamses of the world that they can't keep material for very long because they wind up doing it on a on the tonight show or they wind up doing it on a, a special or something like that. And then it's burned basically, right? You can't. Well, right. Away. And this is why some people are surprised and they hear like, you know, Jay Leno has writers. It's like, no, he's wrote his own stuff forever. But when you're doing a nightly TV show of 10 minutes, you need a staff of writers to come up with jokes every day. It's a lot of material. When in Dennis's show is just once a week, but you know, that was a lot to generate. One guy's not going to sure. do that. Sure. You know? So um, it very, the, the show's really eat it up. And it's funny when Dennis first was getting that show on HBO when we worked together in Boston and, you know, he, he but I didn't know what's going on. He goes, yeah, I might be getting this show. And I thought, oh, this might be good for me. I'm not sure what he's saying here. 
And he said, do you write topical it? And the answer was actually no, because at that point I was a traveling comic and it's like, you hate writing topical because the shelf life is like a week. I'd rather write evergreen stuff that's going to keep going. But I wasn't going to tell him that. And so I said, of course. Yeah, I had my first good Hollywood lie ready right there. I was like, of course I write topical. <laughs> it wasn't really a lie because I thought, well, I can. I just don't. But I was like, yeah. And I had to sit down. And that's why I was like, tell people too. And they're like, well, you knew Dennis Miller. That's how you got in the business. And it's like, well, let me tell you this. When he hired me on my first show, he didn't even have the clout to just say, this guy's on my staff. HBO, I had to send them a hundred topical jokes, Dennis and HBO, and have them approved to get me on the show. And I wasn't sure if I could do it or not. I suspected I could, but I sat down in the USA Today and I did it. And luckily it worked. And, but it's funny. And then, so all of a sudden I became this big topical joke writer for his show but we were burning through it so fast. So, all right. So let's talk about TV now, which is different from standup, although there are, there are, you know, crossovers to it, but when you're working on a Dennis Miller live, that's, um, were you on staff? Were you sitting in a room with a bunch of other writers and churning out jokes or were you in your own house and writing out jokes? How did that work? Well, you know, and it's funny, every show works too. And of course, that's a variety show, as you know, right? Like a talk show is considered variety. It's totally different than sitcom. But the way, and and then all the shows, even if they're in the same genre, whether it's sitcom or variety, what I noticed, it's funny, they all operate a little differently. Depends on who's in charge and how we did it. Now, Dennis's, I liked, we all had our own office, about six of us, and we'd write our stuff there. Then we would gather together for different segments of the show and go like, oh, here's the monologue jokes. And we'd pitch it around. And then we had the big screen, which was, you know, pictures of the news would pop up behind Dennis, just random AP wire photos. We'd get 30 every day, each one of us, and have to write captions for all these. And then we'd meet uh, in, in the room together and they'd hold up their thing and we'd go around. Who's do we like? We like a couple, we'll test it out. So it was constantly test, test, test and thin down. Um, so for Dennis to show a lot of working by yourself and then working with people, which I kind of liked because I like to do both. So I liked the fact that I could go do my own thing and then meet up with everybody and we do our own thing and then go back and forth like that. Who, who wrote the rants? Well, we, we all did. And again, it's like a topic would come up. So we'd all go in and write a few paragraphs about that topic that week. And then we'd give them to Dennis and he'd sift through and start to look and go, yeah, maybe combine some of this, some of this. Then we would sit down and feed it into the computer and, you know, hey, yeah, good. Let's lift that here. And then Dennis would chime in and we'd chip in and just kind of, you know, keep keep chipping away at it. So similar type of thing when you're working on the Oscars or is that totally different? Uh, no, that's pretty similar to I'm thinking, how does Billy work? And he uh, we it, it's similar thing. We write on our own and we bring stuff in and kick it around with him. And it depends on what we're working. If we're doing those opening films of his, that's a whole different way we attack that because we'll sit and watch these movies together and go, this might be a good scene. This might be a good scene. And then for monologue jokes, we tend to just bring those in. Same thing. Billy looks at and we kick it around. Maybe somebody has a little tweak on somebody else's line. Oh, that's good. Let's put it in. You know, you're right. Fat, 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 fat. And then you start thinning and thinning as you get towards the show. Mm-hmm. And then we also, Billy sang, right? He would sing, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful night for Oscar. And he'd sing five parodies about the five, then five nominated songs. And then that worked in a different way. We would go to Mark Shaman's house who played the piano and we'd kind of sing, this might work. And we'd kick it around. So we were again, doing, depending on what part of the show we were writing for, we were working in a different way. 
Were you also yeah. writing lyrics? Yes. It's basically song parodies. It's fun. It's basically writing jokes. So to me, I, and I love music and everything else. And I've always liked that. I've written and I, I wrote the theme song for a couple of cartoons. It's the, the words and stuff. And I mean, so right. that, that always came naturally to me too. So um, I just want to finish off on the Oscars for one moment. Who frequently there's something that happens on the show live and then the host will come out and say something about that moment. Obviously that wasn't prepared in advance. Is he being fed lines prior to going Well, on? you know, Billy's so fast on his feet, which is great anyway. But yeah, we stand back there. And when I remember, and now he's unfortunately in the news, not for the greatest of reasons, uh, Cuba Gooding. But when I, we were there the night he won that Oscar for Jerry Maguire. Right. And I remember he, so we're just standing back right off to the side of the stage and he's 20 feet away from us. He's going, thank you, mother. Thank you. You know, my agent, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. Thank, thank. And he went on. They're like playing him off. And then I just did the Billy. I was like, well, anyone who hasn't been thanked by Cuba Gooding, please line up after the show. And, but, you know, and then Billy walked out and boom, he, he spit that line. So it's kind of fun. It's like, you know, so that happens. But he comes up with his own, too. It's just kind of a <laughs> it's a stew. It's that, a that, it must, comedy. It must be very gratifying to say a line, have Billy Crystal go out and say the line and you have it get a big laugh. That was... Hey, he stole my bet. No, I'm going to steal him. Like, <laughs> hey, I said that. I said that. And I hope I hope out. you got paid for it. Yes, yes, we do. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. All right, let's talk for a moment about sitcoms, which is a whole other cat. Um, yeah. Stand-up is one kind of thing. Variety shows are another kind of thing. But sitcoms, now you add the element of characters in a plot, which is a little different from all the rest, which is kind of more, you know, bits and pieces, more vaudevillian. Right. Um, when did you start to write sitcoms? When did that happen? Well, it's funny, like all along this way, it's like, oh, I'm writing my own jokes. And then it's, oh, I'm writing jokes for others. And then, you know, in the monologue, like, can I write those? Can I write screen count? And it's like, you don't know till you try, right? So you do it. My manager and agency was like, do you write sitcoms? I'm like, sure. It was like the same thing. I was like, uh, yeah, of course. And I had to sit down and see if I could write a spec script. That's, so that's what I did. So I, that was next. While I'm on that show, when I was on hiatus from Dennis's show, I'm like, well, I got to learn how to do this. And so... You know, I learned from Sid Field and you write some of those and so forth, but you got to sit down, look at an examples of some scripts and come up with your thing and, and just do it and sat down and found, oh, I can do this. And so I wrote a spec that was really, really well received. And I was like, oh, cool. I think I can do this, you know, and then what spec did you write? My very first spec was Frasier. Mm -hmm. And then the next one was Larry Sanders. Those were the two big, and they were real good. And, and as people may not know or whatever, like the shows that you write the specs for, don't buy those. Exactly. You're not doing it for them. But people don't know. It's like they, they don't want unsolicited materials. They won't take anything that wasn't written in their staff for legal reasons too. So when you write a spec, it's just a sample to show people you know how to do this. Sure. And it's good to do it for a show that's known because then when people are reading it, they know what these characters sound like instead of, you know, then that was another challenge. Now I've got to come up with my own characters in my own world that people haven't heard and read this. And is this something they want to make? You know, there's always like another step. It's like, don't I ever graduate in, in this stuff? You no, know? you don't ever graduate. As you know. So. No, you just keep doing. And you just, and by the way, all of the things that you've learned over the many years of doing it, by the time that you're really mature and very good at it, 
the whole thing has shifted out from under you and it's in a whole different place. So you have to keep learning what it is that's selling. Right, right. To, to a certain degree. The lucky thing for me is, you know, comedy sells. There's always a place for funny, even in dramas, even in movies. I did a lot of movie punch-ups. Like I haven't written a movie from beginning to end. I never have. Um, and I love drama, but I've been called in to write. It's like, we need some jokes. You know, it's such a blurred line anymore, dramedy. And even a really tense movie needs a few good lines to kind of that comic relief. For the listeners that don't know, you've sort of described it, but explain what punch-up is. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going in basically and planning jokes into places where they aren't or making the jokes better that are in something already. That's a true punch up, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's going in and, and adding funny lines into scripts to help punch up and make it better. Right. Uh, so so. All right. So when you're working on staff on a sitcom and you worked on a few staffs, right? Yeah. OK, so when you're on staff, how different was that to working on, say, a variety show staff? Were there big differences? Yeah, you know, there were. It's funny. And, and even though, as I say, from sitcom to sitcom, they run a little differently. But sitcoms are more of the, you're writing the script this one particular week, but most of the time is spent in the room with like 10 other people hashing out story ideas and hashing out outlines. And, you know, so that was a little weird, like, you don't spend as much time in your office. You spend more in the conference room, which I wasn't crazy about. Because after a while, it, you know, it's like you're flying to London every day. You're in there for 10 hours with these people and you never get to get out and see London. That part of it, I was never so crazy about. It felt much more claustrophobic, but nice when we got down onto the um, stage and you'd see the stuff you were cooking up come to life out there and go like, oh, this, this part of it's kind of fun. Yeah, it was interesting. I will tell you this too. Like, so when I was in Variety and I hadn't done sitcom and even though they liked my sitcom specs and I had actually won awards already, they, they the places were like, well, we have to see. And the, is this guy up to be in here? And I, some of the sitcom rooms I got in and I thought there's more stiffs hanging out here than in Variety. Because in the Variety room, there was nowhere to hide. Where's your 20 jokes today? Where's your 50 jokes today? In a sitcom room, you know, you're throwing it around. You may not even notice, you know, Al hasn't said much this week that has gotten in the script, but you don't notice it because the staffs always tend to be bigger too. That was my initial kind of thought. I thought, that makes me a little resentful. Oh, can I hang out in here? It's like, I don't think you guys could go in the world I just was in, you know? And so that that was an interesting difference to me too. Did it, did it make you in any way feel like uh, you were a cut above? always no uh no no you know there were great people in there too but i just remember like on variety it was a little harder to hide somebody who wasn't good you know you'd see it here and there but it's like you really had to produce a lot of work every day mm -hmm. and whereas in the sitcom it was more like oh how do things go along and you'd start to look and go like that dude doesn't say anything ever once in a while or you just you'd notice it more i guess there there are tons of brilliant and then you know the better room you get into, it's like, oh, this is a really good show. These guys are all great. These women are all great, you know, uh, it varied. But I, I did notice that, especially when I, the first one I went to had a staff, like some of the staff was not so good and some of the staff was real good. But that really stood out to me. Whereas on Dennis's staff, everybody was really good. So mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. And, you know, as I went on to other shows, Drew Carey show and this and that, it's like, everybody's really good. But the very first one I went was this small sitcom. And, you know, and it was like, yes, oh, so some of this is not so good. Hit and miss. This is a big, this is an overall question. Most TV, um, you know, professional TV writing and 
stand-up comedy comes with various built-in pressures. There's time pressure, there's uh, deadline pressure, and all the rest of it. Um, do you, how do you deal with pressure? Do you feel pressured? And, and how do you deal with it? Yeah, it's funny, Steve. I, I don't. My pressure and where all pressure comes from, as uh, Wayne, Wayne Dyer used to talk about, it really is true. It's coming from inside, right? You think pressure is this stuff that's out there sure. until you realize it's like, actually, it's not. That's all coming from in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would be a little hard on myself sometimes. Uh, that's when sometimes the pressure be like no i think i can do better and like weird things like that i didn't feel a lot of external pressure and just because this is stuff i could always do you know i find life much more stressful and much more full of pressure because there's so many situations i really don't know how to handle or found intimidating or i don't know but like this was something i just always felt like i could do and i always felt good so like the pressure in showbiz to me doesn't exist a ton you know you're nervous before you go out on tv or this or that but overall i never felt and not again not because i think i'm so great but i just felt comfortable doing this it's like i know how to do this well you 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 said the right word which i think is you're comfortable doing it you were it was not an uncomfortable thing for you to do right and that's right. what makes the difference. So now I'm going to ask you a, a question. We'll see how you, you handle it, because I ask lots of people variations of this particular question, which I find. Oh, am I going to go storming off here? Is that is that where this is coming? I, I you know, I was hoping you'd do something dramatic. Um, <laughs> so, OK, so the old line is dying is easy. Comedy is hard. And I know it's almost impossible to define. But for you, what do you think makes comedy so difficult to do well? Oh, are you storming off? <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I was trying to figure out this table's really heavy. I was trying to flip it over, but I can't. I'm not as strong as I used to be, so I'm going to have to call some some folks in and help me flip this table. T- tough question, I know. I know that's a tough question, but what what makes comedy comedy? What makes it so hard? Because not everybody can do it, Ed. Not everybody yeah, can. Yeah, do I don't know, do. but but see, that's to me. I'm here. I remember Woody Allen describing this really really good, uh, talking about people like, how do you do that? And then he said like. Well, it's almost like asking, it's like my sister can paint beautifully, you know, just since she was a little kid. Now, again, you can take classes and get better, but boy, she could doodle and make these, you know, and I can't draw at all. And if I would ask her, how do you do that? I don't know. I just do it. And it's kind of the same with writing comedy, being funny, looking at things in a certain way. It's like, I don't know, you know, like, how do I do that? I, I don't know. It's just what I am. Like, I'm not, don't even feel like I'm doing something. My, my, that was a very good response. My favorite response is when people would ask Stephen King, the great horror writer, what, you're such a great writer. Why do you write horror? And his response always is, what makes you think I have a choice? And, and <laughs> that's great. You know, so that to me is my favorite yeah. answer to that question. That's just what he does. So comedy is yeah. what you do. And so it comes naturally at this point to you. Even in the beginning, you talked about that it came naturally to you. You were just funny. Yeah. And sadly, Stephen King is funnier than me. So that's not a very good sign. <laughs> no, that's a lovely quote. I hadn't heard Either that. that or you're more horrific than him. Well, you can argue either one. <laughs> I'm sure you've had your fair share of dealings with executives, networks, studios, that sort of thing. And you've received notes from producers and executive producers and great comedians. You've received notes. What is your philosophy on handling notes? How do you handle them? <laughs> I pretend like they don't irritate me. Now, you know, the, the well, like a lot of people, it's funny, you know, some people give good notes, but it's mostly other performers or other writers. Like, well, anybody that wants to make anything I'm doing better, please have at it. I have no ego. But 
as you probably experienced, it's when people that really don't know what they're doing are giving you notes that are making it worse. Mm -hmm. That's when it gets frustrating. And, you know, it's okay if you don't know how to do this. Like, it, it's odd to me. I always wondered, like a lot of people, why are there so many bad TV shows? Why are there so many bad sitcoms? And then you get to Hollywood and it's like, oh, this is why, because you do have a lot of mid-level executives coming and giving notes that just have no clue. And it would be fine if they had no clue if that wasn't their job or if they'd stay out of your way. But they, you know, it's somebody who took a one semester of screenwriting at NYU and they're in their first suit and they're 23 years old and they're telling people that do this for a living how to do this for a living. And some of the notes are just terrible. And, you know, and what do you, and what do, you do when you get a bad note? What do you do? Do you, do you just take it and then not deal with it? Or do you just it really try to... Depends, right? It depends on because if, if if the person's nice about it or whatever, you know, I'll say like, well, it's like, okay, we'll take a look at that. Or you'll say something like that. But sometimes, you know, it's somebody who's really high up in the food chain. It's like, guess what? They're paying my check. This is the note. I'll make it work as best I can. Uh, you know, and then sometimes if you're in a situation where like, this person really does not have it over me and I'll be polite. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. You know, and I won't say that to them. We'll say like, oh, we'll consider it. Type of thing. Have you um, received you know, these people? They're like, "Hey, add this, 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 and this." Well, all right. Hey, why is this so long? Jeez, <laughs> I wonder. But you'll get that kind of thing and go like, "I don't know what to tell you." Have you ever received a note that you knew was an awful note, but for some reason it triggered a better thought that had nothing to do with the note? Boy, they would love that, wouldn't they? I don't know if I want to give people giving bad notes that credit. Um, I don't think so. Uh, a bad note have... is a bad note. I think, and I'm laughing, you know, because certain people handle it really badly. It's hilarious. There was a guy named Kim Weisskopf who wrote on sitcoms and he didn't care. He, he would scream it right. That's a bad note. I'm not taking that note. That's a bad note. It's like he intimidated them. It was like, oh, okay. Was he, was he a partner with uh, Bob Schiller? I, I believe there, so. There was a I Schiller. There was a Schiller. Was famous among our friends. Like, but it was, I think there was a team called Schiller and Weisskopf. I think that was I them. think that, yeah, I think that's got to be him. So, yeah. so speaking of collaboration, which I think is an important um, topic to cover, you, you're, you've never partnered with anybody. There are many writing teams in comedy, but you've never been a team, have you? No. Now, no, I mean, you collaborate with people, right? Or you might work, like you're saying, with Dennis, there's five of us sure. on this or whatever. Well, um, it's, a, it's a highly collaborative act that you're doing when you're working on a show. That's lots of right. people involved. But there are lots of comedy writing teams there. They come in, they are an, an entity, two people, sometimes three, but most of the time, two people. Mm -hmm. And you've never been a team like that with anyone, right? No, and that doesn't sound attractive to me. You know, I, I kind of like the idea of living or dying on my own. So, so what is your philosophy when you're working on a, on a group like that and you are in a collaborative mode? What is your philosophy toward collaboration? How do you deal with it? Oh, I'm happy, you know, and it's usually, especially if you like the people or it's give, good and take. But I also, depending on what my position on the show is too, am I the head writer? Well, then I have the final say. And it doesn't have to be an authoritative position. I like people that'll make a decision and I always was that way. And I'll let them go, boy, these are all good. And actually we've got three different ways guys, but we got to pick one. So I'm going to make the call and say this. And even people I disagree with, 
I prefer that the folks that can't make up their minds like that drives me crazy. And so I, I like even in collaboration, somebody has to make a decision. And even if I disagree with it, you know, I'll have my say and go, you know, I would prefer B to A and here's the reasons, but mm -hmm. it's your call. And they go with A and it's like, you know, you, you, you salute and you get in line and you, and you make A work. But so, so, all right. So I'm curious, you've written, you've spent time at the table, you and the group have written stuff and you've got material. And now you've all of a sudden, you've got a, a show that has characters in a plot. And can you tell in the writer's room whether it's going to land on stage or is it, can you tell if something's not going to land? Can you tell or do you need the actors to, to, to fill that in for you? Yeah, like compared especially to my own stand-up, you know, in my head, I'll be like, oh, I'm pretty sure this is going to land. You get surprised more often in, in the room. And, you know, I can work one or the other. You might have this really great line and this person cannot spit it out to save their life or... It was lucky, like when I was working on Melissa and Joey with uh, Melissa Joan Hart and, and Joey Lawrence, they're great comedic actors. And so you had that confidence, you know, and I used to say to them, I said, you know what, if you guys don't get a laugh with it, it's on us because you guys really do give the best spin on stuff. And they were nice, humble people, too. Like if they kicked the line, as, as you've probably seen, like some actors would be like, well, give me another line that doesn't work. And then again, it's like, well, okay, Pele. I mean, you kicked it all over the stage. We never heard it. <laughs> and Melissa and Joey were great. I mean, I remember Melissa that kind of spit out and she didn't do it great. And I went out, I was like, hey, do you want another line there? And she's like, no, 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 let me do it half decent. And then she got a big laugh. And I thought like, wow, do I respect you for being able to you know, say, hey, let me try this. So you get a little of everything. All right. So what would you say are the most common mistakes that you see in novice screenwriters coming on or novice comedy writers? What are the biggest mistakes that you see? Any? Hmm. Well, I guess I would say like you cannot be too married to your own pitch. I'll, you know, you'll see people like, hey, you're so tough. And I'm like, ah, and we like this stuff. And they'll keep like pushing for that joke. And you want to go like, we heard it the first three times. You know, now you're just getting annoying. And, and so that's something that some people get. So it's like, no, 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 it's got to be this. It's like, we heard it and he heard it and it's not bad, but he wants to do something else. So here we go. So you can't get too, too married to your, to your uh, babies there, you know. All right. So when you're writing a sitcom script and you're writing, it's your turn to write the first draft before it gets to the table to get beaten up further. Um, mm -hmm. How many drafts do you typically do before you call it the first draft? Oh, me before I even hand it in? Yes. How many drafts do you do before you call it? Here's draft. Here's my first draft, guys. Well, my the way I work and people work different ways. Um, I I go from beginning to end and I plow. I don't look back. And that's what I'm typing too. I'm like, I know I just did a typo. I know that joke's probably not great, but I like to move. So I go all the way through. It's I've you know I've written all 35 pages. Here we are. Then I go back. I'll fix this up, and then I go back. So I kind of write one draft. But then I'm going back and making little tweaks. To well, those those are revisions. Are those revisions based on other people's feedback or are they your no, own feedback? No, that's it before I hand it in. So, you, so you're doing, when I say multiple drafts, you're doing multiple drafts, but that doesn't mean that you've thrown it out and started over. It means that you've gone and revised and revised and revised before I you I don't turn even do a ton of that. Just personally, yeah. I mean, because you're going to get revised and revised in the room, as you know. And then again, and again, you, and each sitcom is different I've worked on, but you're usually... Boy, the one that hits the stage is about the third or fourth draft, if you're lucky. Right. Uh, and sometimes it has to do nothing with, you know, the quality of it or whatever, but a network person gets it in their mind. Like, I don't know. I think he's too harsh in this episode. Like, well, I wish you 
had said that three days ago when we showed you this exact thing and now tomorrow's the show, but okay, we'll start on it now. And, um, but if, I know people like friends of mine, they write, they'll write the first act of it. Then they'll go back and write, you know, and I go, oh, I don't know. And this before they even hand it in, but that's what I meant by me. Like I like to push and just get all the way through and go mm -hmm. like, eh. And in the back of my head, I'm like, there's something on page three I don't like, but here we go. Because I like to kind of have it laid out. And most of it lays out good when I do it that way. You know, go back and there's always little tweaks. And it's never big major errors, like going, oh, my God, I left out a whole thing. You know? do, do you have any particular pet peeves about what some writers do and they do them regularly? And you don't have to name uh, names, but do you have any pet peeves about well, what fun is it if I don't name names? Um <laughs> Yeah, nothing leaps to mind because like when I'm in a room with them or reading, I say I, you didn't get annoyed with the people that are in love with their own stuff and keep pitching it over and over. That, that That's probably my number one one, but yeah, nothing else so, like really bugs so, me. So people that don't give up on their own stuff that you know is not working, that's a pet peeve. Yeah, and I think that would annoy most people. I, 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 <laughs> I don't believe that is privy only to uh, you know the artists themselves i i agree that is annoying <laughs> there's no question about that well i've been speaking for almost an hour with ed driscoll and um you know one of today's uh, great comedy writers who's worked with lots and lots of really big talents and so i'm wondering ed in all of your experiences do you have a story that you could share that's either weird, quirky, offbeat, strange, or I'm hoping maybe just plain funny? Well, one that I sticks out in my mind and that was was pretty neat was um, uh, David Steinberg is a friend of mine now, not David Steinberg, the uh, comedian and director, the manager, David Steinberg. He is okay. Billy Crystal's manager and Robin Williams manager and handles a bunch of other people. But he, uh, he's a guy I worked with on various ESPN shows. And then he's the guy actually that introduced me to Billy and got me working with Billy. There was a big radio show in LA uh, that they asked me and David Steinberg to guest host. And I thought, well, yeah, that'll be fun. We would fill in for this guy one day. And it's a four hour show. So no music or anything, right? I'll talk. And that ain't easy. Like we got in there and you start to realize, and it's like, that's, that's a lot of yapping. There's no filling. It's you take some phone calls and we got to talk. And I was talking to David the night before. And, I, you know, I mean, hard to believe like, what would Ed run out of stuff to talk about? But I do. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, don't worry, Billy's going to call in. So we'll have a good segment with him. And, and Robin's going to call in we'll have a good segment with him. And so it was kind of a night really going, this will be all right. But David and I get on there and we're working and Billy called in. It was a good segment. And then we take some phone calls and people are goofy. And we talk about some of the day's headlines. And, and then so about we got 45 minutes left and we get just like three of like the just the most, let's put it politely, most eccentric kind of callers in a row, just, you know, way out there. And we go to break and I say to David, I'm like, oh, my God. We've got 45 minutes and people are whack. I go, those last three, this is ridiculous. And I said, you know, can you get hold of Robin and ask him to call in? And he said, oh, those last three callers were all Robin. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. Three completely different sounding people, weird. I had no clue. Wow. Yeah, Did that you, was really cool. Were you able I to talk to him afterwards? I'm like, Robin, David, I, I'm not sure David knew either. I said when we were talking about it, but I said, you completely fooled me. All three, like one was this weird Western guy. And then there was some woman, you know, all like totally different. Wow. Never for a second did I think, oh, this is probably Robin. You know, so I, I thought that was so cool. Was it, was it recorded? Do you have a recording of it? We do. It's out there somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. 
That'd be a that, nice thing to get hold of. Yeah, no kidding, because that's uh, well, now it's truly historical. But the, yeah. but uh, the the fact that he had you fooled and he had his own manager fooled is that right? That's it. And then I started. I was like, David, you know, it's like, oh, 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 no, I, I by the third suspected he was trying to save face with me. I'm like, he did not. It was just because Robin, his his uh, assistant, called him Steinberg during the break. Right, where he was talking, said, "Oh my God, that was Robin." It's like, hold. Oh. No, I was like sweating out, but then I'm like, oh no, we got 45 minutes. Can you have them call back as 10 other people? <laughs> you know, we're not going to fill in this time. And, and did he? No, we, we, I didn't want to, I didn't have the nerve to ask him to do that. <laughs> and I actually felt better. I was like, oh, okay. The, the, the city isn't full of weirdos. That was just one weirdo friend of ours that was portraying several of them. Yeah. So a, 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 a genius weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty fine line, isn't it? Yeah, really fine line. So, all right, last question for you, Ed. Um, you have a solid, you've already given us tons of advice today, but I'm just wondering if you have a particular solid piece of advice or a tip for those that are looking to break into the industry, whether as a stand up or as a sitcom writer or a variety writer, or somebody maybe is in a little bit and looking to get to that next level. Well, the number one thing I would say is if you believe in the joke, pitch it and pitch it and pitch it until they put it in the script. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the opposite that, of what I was that, saying. That's the annoying thing to do. Oh, right, right. I'm sorry. I, I always get those confused. Uh, to me, like the best piece of advice is to do the work, you know, to sit down because, you know, it's fun work and it's great work, but it's work because mm -hmm. it's shocking. And you've probably run into it. The people will go up to you and be like, hey, how do you do that? You know, so, all right, well, you have to sit down and write and you see their eyes start to blur because they're like, oh, what do you mean sit down and do it? You don't, I literally have had people saying, you don't just go and say, hey, I'm funny and they'll hire you in a thing. And it's like, no. So don't be afraid to do the work. My nephew was in college. He said, this friend is wants to be a comedy writer. He wants to write sketches. He's a big sports fan. Would you talk to him? And I'm always happy to, to encourage somebody or whatever. And I thought, you know, I, I wish I'd known people like me when I was growing up. I just didn't know anybody in the industry, but I'm, you're happy to pass along advice. So this kid calls and, you know, and he says, hey, you know, how do you get into that? And I said, well, you know, you put a little, you need to pull a package together of, of jokes and, and sketch ideas and so forth. And I said, I'll be happy to take a look at them and, and, and give you feedback on it. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I'm more of an idea guy. I don't really like write stuff down, you know. And then I was clear to me right there. It was like, he doesn't want to do this. And so, you know, if you really want to do this, as you know, you really want to do this, you have to do it. You've got to put down and put the work in. There's no magical uh, cure or, you know, silver bullet that they just go like, he's funny. I'm hiring him. It just I, doesn't happen. I have long um, worked on the understanding that lots of people watch television watch movies go to go to nightclubs and so on uh, comedy clubs and they think wow that looks easy i can do that anybody can do that until you actually try to do it and you find out it's really challenging to do and do well and it takes an enormous amount of work you know i, I taught screenwriting here in pittsburgh for 10 years and it's frequent that students come in and think that they can figure it out quickly. And no, it takes time. It takes a lot of effort. Right. Right. And that's, and you have to be okay with that. And like, I never had the assumption. I mean, even though stuff came naturally to me, I still realized, well, it's like, well, I got to write this down and I got to rehearse this. And I have to, I've got, I can't just like, oh, I'll go up there and wing it. It, just, it doesn't work. No, you no. it's a, it's called, it's called doing the, the actual work to do, to do it. Right. Do. So if I, ideas, man, it's like, well, everybody's 
an ideas man, right? Yeah. It's like, mm -hmm. can you sit down and execute that idea and, and make it real? Or will you put that time in? That really kind of separates to me early on, especially young people that have talked to me about it. And I want to do this or that. And you can tell right away. It's like, oh, this guy is great. He put some effort and he's like, would you look at these? I'm like, absolutely. Thank you for putting the work down. You know, the other half you never hear from. He's like, well, I'm not jotting anything down. I got stuff to do. It's uh, the old phrase is ideas are a dime a dozen. And they are. They're, ideas are cheap. It's, it's, it is the, all about the execution. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ed Driscoll, this has just been a fun, fast-paced, terrific hour on Storybeat. And I'm so grateful that you spent a little time with me today. And I appreciate you, uh, you know, giving to the world a little bit of relief through comedy. Oh, good. If I did that, I'm, I'm happy. But uh, yeah, a pleasure, Steve. It was really great talking to you. And I do love uh, the show. And uh, I'm seriously, I'm very uh, honored to be asked. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great Story Beat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.